The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. All right, I'd like you to take your Bibles now and open them to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 18. And our reading today will be from verses 15 through 20. But before we read, I want you to notice that this scripture is bookended on the front end by the love of the shepherd who diligently seeks for the one lost sheep. And then on the other side of it is a parable that Jesus gave about forgiveness in which he teaches that we are to remember the way that God forgave us of our sins and we ought also to forgive one another. Now, in between those two thoughts is this section, which is about discipline in the church. And consider what's on either side of this, the Savior seeking the one who's gone astray in the first part, and then the act of forgiveness that's in the parable that comes in the part after this. And that helps you to get framework for church discipline. Now, if you look at Matthew 18, verse 15, stand with me as we read God's Word. Matthew uh, 18, verse number 15 Jesus said, Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. If he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. But if he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he shall neglect to hear them, tell it unto the church. But if he neglect to hear the church... Let him be unto thee as a heathen man and a publican. Verily I say unto you, whatsoever ye shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever ye shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say unto you, that if two of you shall agree on earth as touching anything that they shall ask, it shall be done for them of my Father which is in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. Father, thank you for your word. Uh, Lord, help us as we open up this text today to start to get some understanding of what you want us to do as a church and what you expect from us. Lord, whatever we do, we always want to obey you and do what your word says. So put that into our heart that we might recognize what needs to be done and follow your will and your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now you may be seated. Today we've reached one of those texts in the New Testament that's really quite easy for us to understand, but very, very difficult for us to put into practice. Now the doctrine that's taught in this passage is really one of the most neglected teachings that we find in all of the Word of God. This is about church discipline. And there are very few churches that will discipline those who have wronged members in the church and those that have wronged the church in general. Now, the Scripture here teaches us about the tolerance, the level of tolerance that we're to have for people when we find sin in the church and in the lives of God's people. And it tells us what we're to do about sin. And one of the most difficult parts of it is how do we as sinners deal with sin in the lives of others. Now, I find it interesting to read about Baptist churches in the past and the way that they've dealt with sin. 
Now, we don't have church records that go all the way back to the beginning, and one of the reasons that we don't is because our Baptist forefathers were trying to survive in the midst of persecution, and so they weren't so interested in keeping a record of everything that they did. But we do have some records from past centuries that tell us how that uh, church discipline was handled in Baptist churches. A few years ago, I was reading about uh, discipline and about the minutes of business meetings in churches in Kentucky during the uh, 18th and the 19th centuries, and I came across some minutes that were written into uh, the meetings of uh, the Forks of the Elkhorn Baptist Church that was very near to where I lived in Kentucky. Let me just read you a few of the entries into their minutes. On the second Saturday in March of 1805, the church met and after divine worship proceeded to business. A charge was brought against Sister Polly Edrington for frequently giving her mother the lie and calling her a fool and endeavoring by tattling to set several of her neighbors at strife with each other. She was excluded for the same. Now there is a lady that was removed from the membership of the church because she had disrespected her parents. She didn't honor her father and her mother. She lied to her mother. And then she was a tattler. She was a gossip that went around from house to house and tried to get neighbors at strife with one another. And so the church removed her from the membership of the church. Now, I don't know if she repented of that sin, but I do know by reading these minutes that the church was interested in this and it was common for churches to investigate sin in the lives of its members. On the second Saturday in October, 1807, after divine worship proceeded to business, complaint against Brother Daniel Brown for frolicking and dancing, taken up and referred to next meeting. Took up the complaint, referred time after time against Brother Benjamin Hickman for joining the Freemason Society and excluded for the same. On the second Saturday in December, 1880, after divine worship proceeded to business, took up the reference respecting Brother John Bohannon neglecting to attend church meetings, he came forward and gave his reason for not attending the church. Vote, his reasons were not satisfactory. Also voted that his conduct and reasons before the church was worthy of exclusion. Now this is some pretty tough stuff. Here is someone who was removed from the church because he did not attend church. How foreign is that to our thinking today? Someone removed from the fellowship of the church because they would not come. And the church examined this person to find out the reasons why he didn't come, and they discovered the reasons weren't valid. And so they removed him from the fellowship of the church. Now, I don't know if that man repented. Now, I do know this, that the church must have gone about discipline right. It must have done it right because all of us are sinners before God, And when we're called to repentance, we are expected to repent. And if we didn't forgive people who did repent, we'd never have anybody in the church. We'd soon have no church. Now, some of these minutes that we've read were from over 200 years ago. And the forks of the Elkhorn Baptist Church is still alive and going strong. They're in the same place that it's been in all of these years. And so I don't know what their practice is now. But I do know at one time they did practice investigating sin in the lives of their members. Now, church discipline is taught in the New Testament. And throughout history, it's been carried on by true churches... 
because the instructions are very clear about what Jesus has to say and about what the rest of the Bible has to say, but there are very few churches that will practice church discipline today. Now, I'd like to quote to you from Phil Newton and a message that he preached on the church as a self-disciplining body. He wrote, or he said, to bring up the subject of church discipline in modern circles causes squirming and scowls. George Wills, Southern Baptist historian and professor at Southern Seminary, wrote a fascinating book about the place of church discipline in Baptist churches of the South entitled Democratic Religion, Freedom, Authority, and Church Discipline in the Baptist South, 1785 to 1900. In it, he explained, antebellum Southern Baptists, and antebellum means before the Civil War, antebellum Southern Baptists excommunicated nearly 2% of their membership every year. Achieving excommunication rates nearly 60% higher than their northern colleagues, they fully exemplified their professions of allegiance to discipline. In spite of active church discipline, Baptist churches in the South grew twice that of the birth rate. But something happened in the churches. Instead of continuing to focus upon the purity of the church, Baptists had grown weary of holding one another accountable. They turned their energies upon cleaning up society instead of the humbling work of maintaining the purity and the unity of the church. And so, as Wills notes, the more churches concerned themselves with social order in the late and early 19th, uh, 20th centuries, the less they exerted church discipline. Ironically, as social awareness took place and evangelicals jumped into the fray of purifying society, it did so to the neglect of the church. So rather than the world reflecting the values and the practices of the church as evangelicalism sought, the church began to mirror the behavior and practice of the world. At the heart of this mega shift in the character of evangelical churches is the neglect and outright abandonment of church discipline. Church discipline, properly understood and humbly practiced, must mark the church. J.L. Dagg, a Southern Baptist first writing theologian, expressed this clearly. When discipline leaves a church, Christ goes with it. That's one danger we must avoid at all costs. And when I first became pastor of the church, one of the very first things that we tackled in that first year that I was pastoring was that I said, I started out by saying that we need to be a church that practices what the Bible teaches in the area of discipline. That each of us must become involved in others' lives and that we are to hold one another accountable for lifestyles of holiness so that we don't bring reproach upon the name of Christ and upon the name of his church. And so we attempted to do that. We started out that way. And we have, through the years, practiced discipline, but I don't think that our practice has been as good as the proclamation. And we need to improve that. And we need to adhere to what the Bible says about this, the biblical model. And some of you have asked me about this. You've asked me, how do we deal with church discipline? And how do we treat people that are under church discipline? And I hope through this series of messages that will correct our practice, that will be drawn back to the Bible on this very important issue that's taught in this passage. That church discipline is good for the offender. It's good for the one who is offended. 
And most importantly, it's good for the purity and the holiness of the Lord's church. And so in these few messages, I hope to show you the biblical model and that we ought to vow and I want us to vow to practice what the Bible says. So you, you can brag about being a church that uses only the Bible for faith and practice. We can brag about that. We can talk about how we only use Scripture. But we don't need to be a church only of rhetoric. We need to be a church of practice, biblical practice. Well, what's at stake when we talk about discipline? Well, discipline is a word that's very closely related to disciple. A disciple is a learner. A disciple is an adherent. But most often when we think about discipline, the thing that comes into our mind is punishment. That when somebody is going to be disciplined, they will be punished. But church discipline is not about punishment. It's about making better disciples. Now notice this, that church discipline is for training and for learning to become more like the Lord Jesus Christ. This is why we practice it. It's for training and for learning to become more like the Lord Jesus Christ. So what's at stake? Well, I think we have to consider the context and the, uh, the previous material that we've looked at in the chapter. This chapter is about the children of God, that we who are born again, we are the children of God. Now, in the first part of the chapter, Jesus used a little child, and he illustrated how that we come into the kingdom of God, that we come in as children, we must humble ourselves as children, He shows us that we are defenseless like children. Little children have to be protected, and we learned about that in verses 5 through 9. We also learned in the next verses, 10 through 14, that little children must be cared for, that the shepherd is the one who goes and seeks those that have gone astray. And as we come to verses 15 through 20, we learn that little children must be disciplined. That we are the little children of God's kingdom and we are protected and we're cared for and also we must be disciplined as children. So what's the issue when we talk about discipline? Well, the issue is sin. The issue is holiness in the lives of God's people. And this is what God has done. He's called us to holiness. And he expects his preachers to be preachers of holiness. And this is because God is seeking a church that is pure and holy because he is a pure and a holy God. And whenever we become afraid to speak out on sin, then we're not going to have a holy church. I don't think there's anybody here who would say that God is unconcerned about sin. You know God's concerned about sin. He sent Christ into the world to die for sin. That's how we're saved, because he died for our sins. God's concerned about it, and he's concerned not only about your sins before you get saved, but he's also concerned about your life after you get saved, that he wants you to be a holy Christian. He wants you to live a life where you do not continue in sin. Paul said in Romans that once we have become believers, we've died to sin, and sin has no more dominion over us. And so he teaches That Christians should abandon sin, turn from sin, give it up altogether, and not go back to it. Teaching about sin and holiness is God's expectation for the church, and we find it all over the New Testament. Not just in this passage, 
But we're going to see as we go through the study that there are many passages in Scripture that talk about the discipline of God's people and how he expects us to live holy lives. So we'll see that. God wants a holy church. He expects us to preach it, and he wants us to enforce it. And that is the key to purifying the church. You see, we can't continue to preach about sin and we can't harangue on it, and we can't insist upon giving it up, and we can't plead for holy lives, and then walk out from the church after the service and go back to the very same things that we were doing before as if the preaching of the Word of God has no effect and doesn't matter at all. We cannot continue to preach the importance of holiness and not connect that to what goes on in our everyday life. And when the disciples learned this, and when they taught it to others, they showed through their teachings that discipline and living a holy life is a part of everyday life, the reality of everyday life as a child of God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul identified a sin that was in the Corinthian church, a sin that no one would do anything about. They tolerated sin, and so Paul insisted that something must be done about the sin. He was an apostle of the church. He was uh, speaking under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. and, And he insisted and commanded the church they should do something about sin. And so that tells us that there is a response to be made when sin is found in the church. And there's an action to be taken so that sin, once again, does not bring reproach upon the name of Jesus Christ and upon his church. Now, as I speak about this, you, you may think that I'm somewhat excited about it and I'm, I'm agitated about it and that what I want to do as the pastor is to go and track down sin in everybody's lives that I want to find out what you're doing and I'm interested in kicking you out of the church if you don't live lives that are holy. That's not my intent. Our intent here is to bring people to the place that they recognize their sin, they give up their sin, and we purify the church through the activities of discipline. And so I assure you that my my excitement will be tempered correctly when we come to how do you treat somebody that's been disciplined or is under church discipline? How do you treat offending? How do you treat offending brothers and sisters in Christ? And what I want to show you is that God is serious about this subject. And there are many churches that are in shambles, they are unholy, they are not examples for the cause of Christ because they will not do this. Their people have not been taught to live lives that are holy. And they've not been taught to rid the church of sin. And we often see this, that people come here and when we talk about discipline, people don't like it. And so they go and find a church that will tolerate their sin, and there are plenty out there that will do it. Now, perhaps the the ultimate in-your-face passage about the identification of sin and the enforcement of sin, or the enforcement of discipline, rather, and the effect that it had on people is what we find in the beginning of Acts chapter 5. Now, I'd like you to turn there, if you would, Acts chapter 5, and we're going to look at this amazing part of scripture, just a really frightening passage that about discipline and about what happened in the early days of the church. Acts chapter 5, some of you recognize the reference before you turn there, but Acts chapter 5 beginning in verse number 1. But a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira his wife sold a possession 
and kept back part of the price, his wife also being privy to it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now let me explain to you what's going on. The church in Jerusalem was growing rapidly. I mean, there were people that were being saved all over the place. Thousands of people were being saved. And in that time, and in that society, it was very difficult to be a Christian. The Jews were against it. The Roman government was against it. And so when a person became a Christian, they were often completely ostracized in society. Many of the Christians lost their jobs because they had received Christ. The Jewish people were thrown out of the synagogues. And to be out of the synagogue meant that you were separated, that you were out of the fellowship of the people. And so many people were thrown out. And then many people were treated as dead by their families. I mean, this was hated so much, becoming a Christian was so heinous to these people that they would consider a family member dead if they trusted in Jesus Christ. Well, the Jerusalem church had many converts, and many of the people had become outcasts. Many of them were were without resources. And so for everybody to be helped, some decided that they would sell their property, and they would pool all of their resources, and they would bring those proceeds to the church And then food and clothing would be purchased for those who needed it. Well, Ananias and Sapphira were a husband and wife that were members of the Jerusalem church. And they agreed that they would sell their property and they would bring the proceeds and give it to the church. But there was a problem. They were hypocrites about it. They weren't giving all and they didn't give all. And so the husband and wife conspired to tell a lie about it. Now in verse number 3... But Peter said, Ananias, why hath Satan filled thine heart to lie to the Holy Ghost and to keep back part of the price of the land? Whiles it remained, what is it, was it not thine own? And after it was sold, was it not in thine own power? Why hast thou conceived this thing in thine heart? Thou hast not lied unto men, but unto God. Now what Peter says to Ananias is, Ananias, there was no requirement for you to sell your property. You didn't have to sell it. It was your property to do with what you wanted. And if you decided to sell it, you could have brought 75%. You could have brought 50%. You could have brought 25%. You could have brought nothing because it was your land to do with as you pleased. But the problem here is that they had vowed to God that they would give all. And what they did was to try to act big, and they tried to make a name for themselves. They thought that people would look at them and say, look what they give. What great Christians that they are. Look at the sacrifice that they've made. They have given all to the Lord. And so they were proud and they were boastful about it. They were deceitful because they hadn't given all. They pretended to give all. They said that they give all. They represented that they had given all. But they were selfish, and they were looking for recognition, and they lied about it. And the Holy Spirit revealed to Peter what they'd done. So in verse 5 it says, And Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and gave up the ghost. And great fear came on all them that heard these things. And the young men arose, wound him up, and carried him out and buried him. And it was about the space of three hours after, when his wife, not knowing what was done, came in. And Peter answered unto her, Tell me whether ye sold the land for so much. And she said, Yea, for so much. Then Peter said unto her, How is it that ye have agreed together to tempt 
the Spirit of the Lord. Behold, the feet of them which have buried thy husband are at the door and shall carry thee out. Then she fell down straightway at his feet and yielded up the ghost. And the young men came in and found her dead and carrying her forth, buried her by her husband. And great fear came upon all the church. You think? Great fear came upon all the church and upon many, as many as heard these things. Now, folks, here we're talking about very serious church discipline. There was no playing around with this. God struck these people dead. And these people, the the rest of the membership of the church, got the idea very, very fast that God does not like sin in his church. And so the purpose of the discipline was to bring fear into their hearts, that they would know God does not like sin in the church. Now, some of you would think, well, why are you speaking of things like this on a Sunday morning? I mean, don't you know that we have visitors here and you're going to drive them away from the church? Well, I want everyone to know that we are a church that's very serious about what we preach. And we're not playing church here. It's our job to preach the gospel, to lead people to Jesus Christ, to enable them to believe the message of Christ. And we're very serious about change lives and giving evidence that the Holy Spirit is really at work and has done something in us. And so if we tolerate sin and we don't preach about it and we don't enforce a standard of holy living, then the cause of Christ is lost. And like J.L. Dagg said, when discipline leaves a church, Christ goes with it. Well, does church discipline drive people away? Well, I'm sure there were some in Jerusalem that said, don't join that church. Those people are crazy over there. You join that church and you could be killed. But who were the ones that would say that? Well, that would be the false professors. It would be the ones that didn't intend to give up any sin. And are those the people that we want in the church? Is that the kind of person that needs to be a member of this church, that we are to fill up a church with people that don't care anything about sin or care anything about the Lord Jesus Christ and about holiness? Now remember, the scriptures teach that Christ died to put away sin. And so do we want a church that's filled up with unregenerate people that love sin more than they love Christ? But that question still remains. Does church discipline drive people away? Well, actually, no. Now, it did make those that wanted to join the Jerusalem Baptist Church think long and hard about being members of it. Only the saved and the committed would want to become members of the church. So church discipline doesn't drive away those that want to serve God. It won't drive away somebody with a humble spirit. It won't drive away someone who's concerned about holiness and for the lordship of Christ. Verse 11 says that great fear came upon the church. And you can just mark this down that when this happened, these people thought twice about sin in their lives, whether it was hidden or otherwise, they thought twice about it. But look down at verse number 14. It says, And believers were the more added to the Lord, multitudes of men and women. Now that tells me that when we get serious about sin and doing something about it, when we preach the word and when we enforce God's word that God will bless the church that he will purge the church, so it will be a glorious church, and then God will grow his church with true believers. And the true ones 
will recognize their sin, they will accept discipline, and they will come back into the fellowship of the church. Now, what we find here is a case where God was acting, and he set an example for what we must do. Now, I don't mean we kill church members. That's not what the example is. But sometimes what God does is he miraculously purges the church like he did in Acts chapter 5. We have another example in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, that in that church that they had made a mockery out of the Lord's Supper, and so the Lord took some of their lives. So God works miraculously sometimes. Uh, He might even still do that today. He may do it today, but the ordinary way that church discipline is affected is through the activities of the members of the church that enforce a righteous standard of holiness upon the membership. Now that sets the stage for what follows, that we are God's children, and like children, we must be disciplined. As a parent, you know that your children need to be disciplined, and you know that discipline has to have teeth. That if you don't enforce what you say, then children won't be learned. Children aren't trained when you just keep telling them and telling them and telling them and then don't do anything about it. You can't just continue to threaten them. You, you, ha- you can't just talk about it. You have to act. You have to do something. And that's because children that don't receive correction don't change. Proverbs has instruction on this. Proverbs 19.18 says, Chasten thy son while there is hope. And let not thy soul spare for his crying. Proverbs 22.15 Foolishness is bound in the heart of a child, but the rod of correction shall drive it far from him. Proverbs 23.13 and 14 Withhold not correction from the child, for if thou beatest him with the rod, he shall not die. Thou shalt beat him with the rod and shalt deliver his soul from hell. Now, you and I, we can argue about that scripture at a later time. What does he mean about beating a child? You think, I think you probably already know. But the Bible very clearly says that children are to be disciplined. So what's the result when you discipline your children? Well, you read on in that same chapter of Proverbs, and it says, The father of the righteous shall greatly rejoice, and he that begetteth the wise child shall have joy of him. Thy father and thy mother shall be glad, and she that bear thee shall rejoice. And we see that same thought is carried over into the New Testament. The Proverbs leads into statements like this that we find in Hebrews 12, verse 6. It says there, For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth and scourgeth every son that he receiveth. So there the writer is taking the physical thing that happened in Proverbs, the discipline of physical children, and he transfers it over into the realm of the spiritual. That's discipline. And just like Proverbs says with our children, God is the one who receives the benefit of discipline. I mean, parents discipline their children in order to get kids that act rightly. Hebrews also says in the 10th verse, uh, chapter 12, For they verily for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure, but he, speaking of God, but he for our profit, that we might be partakers of his holiness. So notice this also today, that the Father delights in children that are partakers of his holiness. Now there's the, there's the, the goal that we're driving towards, is that we might be partakers of the holiness 
of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, consider that this is the analogy that Jesus uses in Matthew 18, that he brought a little child and he set him in the midst of the disciples and he said, let me show you something about children that will help you to understand what I'm doing in my kingdom. That you must come to me as a child, you must be humbled as a child, you will be cared for as a child, you will be protected as my child. But know this also, that you will be corrected, you will be disciplined as a child. So we don't want to preach against sin and preach against sin and preach against sin and do nothing about it. A good parent doesn't do that and God doesn't do it. He doesn't let people continue in sin. And so he provides a plan of discipline. And when we do it according to his plan and his will, he is right there confirming what we do in the church, that he backs up what we do. Now, are we doing wrongly? And are we acting wrongly when we as a church involve ourselves in the lives of others? Are we acting according to what God would have us to do and what he says in the text? Is it too much for us to insist upon it? Is it too invasive for us to get into the lives of other people of the church and see what they're doing? Is that a place where I don't have any business to be and you as a member of the church that you don't have any business what's going on in the life of someone else? Well, the Bible says that heaven backs this up. Look at verses 18 and 19. Verily I say unto you, whatsoever ye shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatsoever ye shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say unto you that if two of you shall agree on earth as touching anything that they shall ask, it shall be done for them of my Father which is in heaven. Those verses tell us that heaven is behind this action. That the Almighty God in heaven blesses these efforts and the decisions that are made by the church when we follow the plan of his word. We can't go wrong doing what God's word says. We can't go wrong. And if that doesn't float your boat, I'm sorry. But if you want to be a member of Berean Baptist Church, you have to be very serious about your life for Christ. There are expectations. Now, we're going to learn what it means to go to a sinning brother, an erring brother or a sister, and call that person to repentance. As I said earlier, we do it for their good, we do it for our good, we do it for the good of the church, we do it for the cause of Christ that his name might be exalted through the holiness of his people. Now, returning to the text, we know that discipline is a a biblical concept. We find it over and over in Scripture. And if the church ignores it, then we do so to our own peril. Now, we're to do everything that God commands. Everything that he commands. You can't ignore this. You can't ignore what the Bible says about church discipline and about holiness and watching the lives of others any more than you can ignore any activity that God has given the church to do. In fact, this has to be at work. It must be at work. Because if it's not, then God's not at work. Because God does not work in the lives of of an unholy church. Now, what many churches do... They draw people in by tolerating sin. They're able to build big churches because they just really don't care what people do. And they draw them in and people will come because nobody's going to say anything about their sin. And one thing that still just sticks in my mind 
is a church in Santa Rosa. And um, we talked about this several times, but the Press Democrat interviewed people as they left this church on a Sunday morning. And I still remember what was written there, that they interviewed a teenage girl. She may have been a college-age girl, not sure which. But they interviewed her and asked her what she thought about the church. And she said, I really like this church because it's not too religious. Now, what does that mean? How can a church not be religious? And you want me to give you a translation of that? It means I like this church because they will accept me just the way that I am that I can come and do anything that I want to do. I don't have to be different from what I am. This church respects what I am, and they don't try to change me. If that's the church you're looking for, this is not the church you want to be a part of. Because what we want to do is to see changed lives. Now, you can fill up the church with those kinds of people. Do we love those kinds of people? Well, of course we do. But we're never going to show them the true love of the Lord Jesus Christ without bringing them to repentance and faith. We can't leave them thinking that they're all right with God if they've never repented of sin, if they've never placed their faith in Christ, and they've never surrendered to the Lordship of Christ. What I'm not interested in doing is holding anybody's hand and escorting them merrily into hell. Now, we expect that the gospel of Christ will change people. That when they truly believe that they will be different people. And I think this text shows us that real converts stand discipline. They'll actually invite discipline because God has called them to be a holy people. See, we need to understand that our sanctification is as real as our justification. That when we get saved, we are justified from all sin. But there is a sanctifying process that begins that is... The Holy Spirit begins in our lives, and if that sanctifying process is not there, then the person has not truly been converted. And so when I teach this, I'm not reaching, uh, even if there aren't any other churches that teach it, and and even if nobody will practice it, that doesn't matter. I'm not overreaching because discipline is dyed into the fabric of the Lord's church. It's all over Scripture. It's the teaching of the New Testament. It's the teaching of Jesus. It is the command of God. Now, today is introduction to the topic. Some of you have not heard it. Some of you maybe before I even mentioned it today, you didn't even know what church discipline was. What's that all about? You don't know what it is. You don't know who's responsible for it. Some of you don't know what to do. Some of you have never done it. And we need to change that. Most of you, I would say, have never taken the steps that are outlined in Matthew chapter 18. Now, we're going to talk about this because I have people that come to me all the time that refuse to take the steps in Matthew 18 for various reasons, whatever they might be, but they want somebody else to do this. Somebody else do it, not me. And we're going to see that the Bible doesn't tell somebody else to do it. It tells you that if you are a child of God and you are a member of the church, you are responsible for beginning the process of discipline. Did you know that? And so we're going to learn about this. Well, some people will do this. They'll say, well, I, I, someone has wronged me. Someone has said something about me. Who does that person think that he is? I see it all the time. And what they do is they leave the church. They leave Because somebody said something to them that they didn't like. 
Somebody had an attitude they didn't like, and so they just leave the church altogether. Is that the biblical model? Well, not at all. You can't step away from the Lord's church like that. The biblical model is to go to the erring brother, to go to that person, discuss what's happened, and to work that thing out and be reconciled to one another. That's what the Bible teaches about it. Now, as surely then, as God has put us here for the conversion of his little children, and as surely as he's promised that he will protect his children... And just as he has promised that he will not fail to care for his children and that he will forgive them when they sin against him, just as surely as those things, he says that we are to be a church that corrects people that have fallen into sin, that we are to teach God's children and help them to learn to follow him and live lives of holiness. So that's the path we're going to walk in these next few weeks. Jesus is leading his disciples into the way that will preserve his church, the way that keeps the church holy. Now, the church has been here for 2,000 years now. How do you think it survived? Do you think the church of the Lord Jesus has survived because sin was permitted in the church? We know that can be. God doesn't bless a church that's in sin. That, that's going to destroy the church. So he expects us to do this because it's one of the ways that he preserves his church throughout the centuries. He expects people to be holy and obedient. And what we can't do, we cannot preach repentance and faith and conversion and call for a change in other people's lives those that are out there that we're trying to reach with the gospel. We cannot call for a change in them if there's been no change in here. We must be holy people. And we achieve that through discipline, recognizing sin, and then doing something about it. That's what God expects from his church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. I know that it's a hard subject for many people to get a grasp of, even though it's so simple in Scripture, yet... Putting it into practice is one of the hardest things that we'll ever do. But by your mercy and by your grace, we know that you can help us to do this. And we know that we'll have the blessings of the Holy Spirit upon us because we do it because it's being obedient. It's doing exactly what you told us to do. Lord, we want a church that magnifies and glorifies you through the holiness of the lives of your people. So help us to take the instruction well. To consider what scripture says and that's always the most important thing what does the bible say about it and if the bible says it we want to do it now today we pray for anyone here who uh, might be lost they haven't received christ as savior the message today has been mostly to those who are believers and quite frankly mostly to people who are members of the church lord if there's anyone here who doesn't know you as savior we we don't expect to scare people off with the truth. I know that it's hard for for others to, to accept, but you save whom you will. You work in the hearts of whom you will. And we just can't back up on Scripture because we think they people won't listen and they won't be saved if we teach hard things. No, you call people to repentance, and we know that. So we put all of our hope and confidence in you that if there's someone here today who doesn't know you as Savior 
They'll hear the message. They'll believe it, that Jesus Christ died to save them from their sins, and their hope is to be found in him. Bless us as we sing. We thank you for the time we spent together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.